and everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new at Strong Tower, we're glad uh, that you're with us today, whether you're here in the building or watching with us online or listening to us on the podcast or whatever it may be. Um, if you want to grab your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in two places, Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48, we'll be spending most of our time there. Uh, as you're turning there, I would just like to offer a, a brief uh, pastoral word uh, for our congregation and our community. Uh, for many people, it's been a rough week. Uh, if you're unaware, on Tuesday there was another shooting uh, where eight people were murdered and six of them were Asian American women. And uh, it has not been a, a isolated event that there's been records of 150% increase in uh, hate crimes towards our Asian American brothers and sisters since the pandemic. And so there's a lot of people grieving right now. Um, I would just encourage you as, as our church to be praying and, and listening. Spend some time, uh, if you know some folks, to talk to them, uh, be with them, weep with them. Uh, there's a lot of people struggling right now. So just to make you aware of that and encourage us in that, you know, two of our core values uh, have to relate with that, I would say. A family is one of our core values, and in that description, we, we talk about um, being a committed cross-cultural community. And what that means is committed even in the hard times, right? When people are suffering in our cross-cultural community, we, we listen and we stop and we pray and we lament together. And then also justice, that we would pray for justice, that we would have a society that uh, rather than hate and violence, uh, we would seek out and pray for um, wholeness and health and uh, honor towards the image of God. So just want to encourage us in that as we uh, go on in our worship service, that we'd be praying and, and listening uh, to our brothers and sisters. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be looking at just one verse as we're continuing our series through this chapter full of... Uh, people of faith, and we're looking at verse 21, and then we'll jump to Genesis 48. But hear the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And then over to Genesis 48, the, well, almost the end of the, of the book of Genesis, beginning in verse 8. It reads this way, When Israel, that's Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. And so Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph looked, or sorry, Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd, 
all my life, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today in upside-down faith, an upside-down faith. Let's pray before we begin. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would send your spirit to speak to us. May your spirit enliven and illuminate the word of God to change our hearts, our minds to love you more. But God, more than anything, give us faith. Give us faith to believe. As as this series has been teaching us, walking through the lives of these uh, folks who have trusted in you, God, you are worth our trust. You are worth our faith. And so we pray that you would help us to endure by faith because of your grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the, uh, if you remember from middle school science class, the periodic table of elements is already difficult to understand. It's even harder to understand if you're severely colorblind. And this is the case of a young man in Minnesota by the name of Jonathan Jones. He's uh, 12-year-old, and, and he was in seventh grade science class, and he was born with uh, severe colorblindness and couldn't see. If you, if you remember the periodic table, it's got all the different colors to categorize uh, the different elements, and, and he couldn't see the colors. And one day they're in class, and they were talking about genetics and the relationship between genetics and colorblindness, and the principal, Mr. Hansen of their, of their school, Mr. Hansen came to the class that day because he also suffered his entire life with severe colorblindness, and he brought a surprise for Jonathan. He brought this surprise where two years ago he had bought these special glasses, these special glasses that help you see color when you're colorblind. And so he brings these glasses to the class, and, and some of Jonathan's family was there because they knew this was going to happen. His mom was there, his brother was there, and they're videotaping the whole thing. And Mr. Hansen gives him the glasses, and he puts on the glasses in the middle of the class, and he looks around, and you just see all of his body just ooze with joy. He just gets overwhelmed. His, his face lights up, his eyes are big. He looks around, and he sees color for the first time in his life. And he takes the glasses off and he just melts. Like he just weeps with this emotion. And it, he puts the glasses back on. He walks across the room to the periodic table of elements. And he begins to point out all the colors on the chart that he'd never seen before. Now his little brother who's videotaping this, 
Uh, he's live on Facebook, and, and this video is going viral. Somebody online starts a GoFundMe for them. They raise thousands and thousands of dollars. They thought they were raising money just for a pair of glasses for Jonathan, but they were able to raise enough for hundreds of kids like Jonathan to get glasses. I mean, it's an incredible story of the power of being able to see differently. To see differently. Right? This, this is an image that, that I want you to get in your mind as we walk through this passage because the, the, the power of seeing differently is what the gospel is really all about. And sometimes in the church, we treat the gospel as if the gospel isn't about seeing life differently, but it's, it's either a decision you make or it's a doctrine you believe. And what I mean by that is a doctrine you believe is, you know, you, you know the basic outline of the gospel. God is holy, I am sinful, and Jesus is good, and He saves us, He dies on the cross, right? There, there's this very simple set of beliefs and principles and doctrines, and yes, that is true, that is the gospel. Or you, you have an experience with God, right? Sometime in your life, way back in the day, uh, you, you heard some preacher talking about heaven and hell, and you didn't want to go to hell, so you decided, I want to go to heaven, and you walked down to the front, and you prayed the prayer, and you had this experience. You remember, you, you were crying, you were praying, you, you felt God's presence in your life, and the gospel is this experience for you, this, this decision moment in your life that you made. Yes, it can be that. It can be a decision that you make to follow Jesus, right? The gospel calls us to do that, to repent and believe. So the gospel is these things. It's doctrine, it's decision, but it's more. It's more. It's actually more like those glasses. It's where you put on these lenses, and, and not only does it affect the, the, the past in your life, but it affects everything you see in life. It affects everything to where, if it's just a doctrine, then it's irrelevant today. If it's just an experience, it's irrelevant today because that's in your past. But if it's a lens by which you see all of life, it affects everything. And so as we come to this text today, we're, we're continuing this series through Hebrews 11, and we've been talking about how the early church is struggling. They're, they're suffering. They're being persecuted by the Roman Empire around them. And, and everybody's wondering, what should we do? How do we approach this suffering? We, we've never suffered like this as Christians before. How, how do we go about this faith when, when it seems like our life was better in the past? And so many people are, are deciding, should I continue or should I go back? And the call in Hebrews is to see Jesus as better. Right? If you read the rest of Hebrews, the whole argument of the book is that Jesus is better. He's better than all the things in the past. He's better than the Old Testament uh, prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than all these things. And then it comes to this culmination in chapter 11. And he calls them to not just see Jesus as better, but because he's better, that you can endure by faith. You can endure by faith. And so this, this call to endure is to see life differently. Right? The call to the gospel is to see with this lens that's different than everything else you've experienced. And so how does that happen? I think it's in this life of Jacob. We come to Jacob's life in this story, and it's at the end of his life. And if you know Jacob's story, uh, Jacob might be the last character you would think who would be an example of faith. I mean, Jacob is the most conniving, manipulative uh, cheater. I mean, his name literally means cheater. This is the man who, who has, has stolen and taken everything in his life, and now at the end of his life, we see what the book of Hebrews says is the culmination of the height of his faith. 
I mean, there's lots of places where Jacob has faith, and, and it's amazing, amazing stories that you see in Jacob's life. So why would it be this point? What, what makes this scene of him blessing his grandsons the peak? I think it's because Jacob finally saw life through that lens. He finally was able to look back on his life and see the gospel lens of all that God was doing through him. And so that, that's what I want to ask today. How did that happen? How did that happen in Jacob's life? How, how does this lens of this gospel, the, the way of God, different than the world? Well, first, if you're taking notes, we have to see the way of weakness. It begins with this way of weakness. So look at verse 8 in, in chapter uh, 48 of Genesis. Uh, the story goes like this. It says, when Israel, and that's Jacob, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. And so Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. Now, a lot, pause there, a lot has happened so far in the story, right? Last week, we looked pretty far back in Genesis. We've sped forward, and, and we're at the end of Jacob's life, and a lot has happened. I mean, he's had sons, right? Jacob's had 11 sons. Joseph is one of the 11. Joseph gets sold by his own brothers into slavery. Joseph gets sold into slavery, and then his brothers pretend like he died. They fake his death. So they go home, they tell dad, hey, Joseph got murdered. We don't know what happened. All we found was some clothes. So this whole time, Jacob has been thinking his favorite son, Joseph, is dead. But the whole time, Joseph was off living in Egypt. He's being uh, elevated slowly to this place of power and influence. And along the way, he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so now they've been reunited at the, book, or at the end of the book, and we're going to talk about that next week, how that worked. But, but right now, it's at the end of their life, and, and they're, or the end of Jacob's life, and they're being reunited. And, and Jacob, for the first time, is meeting his grandsons. For the first time, after all these years, he's meeting his grandsons, and the scene is, is reminiscent of last week's scene. If you were here last week, or you, or you listened to the sermon, we were looking at how Isaac, Jacob's father, blessed his sons, Right? And do you remember how Isaac was described? He was described as, as his eyes were growing dim with his old age. He couldn't see anything. He was, he was losing his mind a little bit. And, and it was the end of his life. He knew it was coming to the end. And so he, he decided he wanted to bless his sons. And he had two sons. And here we go. Again, now Jacob is described just like his father at the end of his life. His eyes were dim with old age. There's two sons, but it's not really his sons. It's Joseph's sons. And so he wants to bless Joseph through his sons. In other words, he wants to give Joseph a double portion of the blessing. He wants to give Joseph this double portion because Joseph was his favorite, and so he calls these sons to himself, and he basically adopts them. He says, your sons are going to become my sons, and I'm going to treat them as part of my family's blessing. And so Joseph brings the sons to him, and he lines them up, right? Manasseh, the older one, he lines them up with his father's right hand so he can receive the right hand blessing of the firstborn. He lines up Ephraim with, the, with uh, the father's left hand so he can receive the left hand blessing. And then right at the last minute, right, right as, as Jacob was going to put his hands on their head and pronounce the blessing, the Bible says he crosses his hands and he blesses the younger. 
with the firstborn blessing. He gives the firstborn blessing to Ephraim. Just like last week, it happens again, just like what happened with Abel. Abel gets the blessing, and then Isaac gets the blessing, and then Jacob gets the blessing, and now Ephraim gets the blessing. It's all throughout Genesis. You see this pattern where the younger gets the blessing. But this time, it was on purpose. This time, Jacob, who stole the firstborn blessing last time, now he's the one who gives the firstborn blessing, and he does it because he saw this is the way God works. He saw that the blessing was given to the younger, to the weaker, to the smaller, that the line of promise was of faith, not of the flesh. In other words, what Jacob was beginning to realize at the end of his life was the gospel works by weakness. In fact, God's preferred way of working is weakness. It's weakness. You don't believe me? Uh, Listen to this. Give the example of Gideon. Right, Gideon in the Old Testament, he was one of the judges, and, and God calls Gideon to deliver Israel out of the oppression of the Midianites. The Midianites are oppressing them, taking advantage of them, abusing them, so God sees them in their oppression. He calls Gideon. Gideon says, no way. He says, I'm not touching any of that. I'm, I'm the weakest. I'm the smallest. You call somebody else. Well, God eventually gets Gideon to do what he's calling him to do, right? He, he calls Gideon. Gideon eventually says yes. Then Gideon goes to the battle, and he shows up to battle. He has 32,000 soldiers. Sounds like a lot, right? Well, the Midianites have 135,000. They're outnumbered severely. And then when God shows up to the battlefield and he sees that they're outnumbered, what does he say to Israel? He doesn't say, oh, I'll send you some more help. He says, you have too many. He says, 32,000 soldiers, that's too many. You'll think if you fight with that many soldiers that you're the one who won. And so he tells Gideon to go back and get rid of some folks. So Gideon goes home, gets rid of some people, comes back, he has 10,000. God says, no, that's still too many. He says, go back. And Gideon goes back and comes back with 300 people. And what does he say? Oh, that, that I can work with. That, 300 against 135,000, that's something I can work with. And they go to the battle in weakness, and they win. Because God's way is weakness. It's weakness. You still don't believe me. In the New Testament, Paul, the apostle, you know, the, the one who wrote half the New Testament, the one who planted all these churches, the one who's probably the most influential Christian in history besides Jesus himself. I mean, Paul the Apostle, known for his intellect, known for his strength, known for all that he's done in history, he found God's way through his suffering. He he writes in, in 2 Corinthians about this ailment that we're not really sure what it was, but he calls it his thorn in the flesh. Something that was going on in his life that he's begging God, get rid of this, get rid of this. I'm I'm trying to get rid of this. It's killing me, God. Over and over he asked him, over and over. And what does God say? No. And then he says this. God, God says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Weakness. Paul, the great apostle, had to learn God's power through weakness. 
through weakness, right? God's way is and always has been weakness. I mean, consider Jesus himself. His whole life was the way of weakness. He was born to teenage parents. He was born in the obscure town of Nazareth that literally wasn't on the map. People said, what, what good can come from Nazareth? Jesus, right? He, he was born in this, this family that was, was carpenters by trade, and he was a peasant by class. He was rejected by his own hometown. He was rejected by his own creation. Jesus was poor. He was marginalized. He was homeless. He was shamed. He was murdered. God. I mean, when Jesus stands before Pilate on his trial, Right before he's crucified, Pilate hears that he's the king of the Jews. And so he asks him in kind of a mocking way, he says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 my kingdom is not of this world. What he's describing to Pilate is, Pilate, you think kingdom is about power. You think kingdom is about strength. And when you talk about a kingdom, we're talking about two very different things because your way is not my way. It's not my way. And in fact, we see this contrast in the story of Jacob. That This is what brings us to the next point, that the way of the gospel is opposed to the way of the world. So the second thing is the way of the world. Look at what happens in the story in verse 17. It says, When Joseph saw that his father, Jacob, had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. I mean, this is incredible right here. Joseph is is disappointed. The, The word literally can be translated, it was evil in his eyes. It was evil in his eyes that his father would would give the blessing to the weaker, to the smaller. to to the one who wasn't supposed to have it. I mean, Joseph's thinking in his mind, God, I mean, and Dad, why would you do this? Why would you give the blessing to to Ephraim when clearly it's Manasseh's blessing? I mean, think about it. Joseph is just a product of his culture, right? Joseph is like us, where he grows up in this, this environment in the Egyptian empire where the highest value in Egypt is power and strength and status and influence. And Joseph has worked his whole life to get up to the top And he sees life through that lens. He sees this is the way you get things done. This is the way you have influence. The people who are powerful, the people who are influential, the people who have status, the firstborn is the way that things happen. That's what Joseph is thinking. And then Jacob, I love his response. It's so tender. He doesn't rebuke him. He he incarnates with him. He, He just says, I know. I know, my son, I know. I mean, think about that. This is Jacob who's, who's lived his whole life. He, he's listening to his son spill his heart out and, and, and beg and, and plead for strength and power and status. And Jacob can't help but think about his own life and think about how he spent his whole life trying to live the way of the world. He spent his whole life trying to cheat his way to the top. He's lived his whole life trying to use and abuse and manipulate. He spent his whole life trying to take advantage of people so that he could be on the top. And and at the end of his life, Jacob's able to look back and, and speak to his son and say, listen, I know you think this is the way. I've thought that's the way. I know that you think this is how things get done. I've thought that that's how things get done. But trust me, 
This is the way it works. This is the way it works because the gospel works by weakness and the world works by strength. The world works by strength. See, the, the culture that we live in, it has two, um, two twin idols, as I like to say, twin idols of strength. And, and you can call them competence and independence. Competence and independence. What do I mean by that? Competence is this, this sense in our culture that we highlight and we idolize uh, competent people and competent things in, in really every, every area of life, right? We, we want to hire the best candidates. We want to celebrate the best athletes. We want to listen to the best artists. We want to send our kids to the best schools. We, we want the best of the best of the best. That, that's our highest value is who is the best? Who is the most competent? Who's the most successful? And listen, there's nothing wrong with being the best or desiring to be the best. The problem is when that becomes your highest value and your highest desire, and then you despise the weak, it's become an idol. When, when you look at the powerful and the successful and, and the people who, who have what you want to have, and you look at the people who are weak and who have failed and who are broken, and there's despising, it's, it's evil in your eyes. It's become an idol, right? These are the weak people. These are the people that, that deserve what they get. These are the people who, who should be on the bottom, right? If Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first, that's the way the kingdom works. What we really believe is the way the world works, which is the first will be first and the last will be last. And so we might as well work as hard as we can and live our life in such a way that we make sure we're first. Which brings us to the second of the twins, independence. Right? If our highest value is, is competence and being the best and making sure everyone around us sees us as such, just like the world, then we're going to spend our life separated, with an arm's length, independent. Nobody can get too close because they're competition. Nobody can speak into my life. Nobody can really get vulnerable with me. I have to live my life focused on me, taking care of number one, making sure that me and the people around me have what they need and, and everybody else is an afterthought. Do, do you see how that pulls you in? Do you see how it pulls you in and it's just deeply selfish? Because we want so bad to be seen as competent and successful. We want to be the best parent. We want to be the best at our job. We want to be the best in our circle of friends. We want to be the best in ministry. We, we want to be the best. What does that have to do with enduring? Everything. Remember the, the context of Hebrews as he's speaking to the, the people who are struggling in the early church here, here's what it is. You ready? If, if you believe that you can endure by yourself, you've believed the lie. See, the lie is that I have what it takes. The, the lie of strength is I have what it takes. That I can do this on my own. I can live this life. I, I can be competent. I can be successful. I, I, I can live the Christian life. And I don't need anybody else to speak into my life. I, I don't need anybody else to be with me on this. I, I've got this. And then suffering hits. 
and something too big for you wrecks you. The marriage gets too hard. The ministry is too stressful. The, the kids are too confusing. I don't know how to talk to them now that they're teenagers. I, I don't know what to do with, with my grown kids. I, I, I don't know how to relate to my spouse anymore. We, we've kind of grown apart and the marriage is cold. And you know something happens in your life where it's just too much. And you thought you were capable because you idolized competence and you idolized independence. And now when it falls apart, you've got nobody. You see, the, the lie of strength. So how does that transformation happen? This is what happens to Jacob. Jacob, who'd been living his whole life, believing the lie of strength, finally gets broken, but he has to, he has to be wrestled into it. He has to be wrestled into it. And this is the third point, the way of the wrestler. Uh, listen to this. Look back at Jacob's blessing in verse 15 and 16. There's, there's content in the blessing that, that gives you insight into what, what's happened in Jacob's life. In verse 15, as he's pronouncing this blessing, remember he crossed his hands, he's, he's blessing these sons, and he says, uh, and, and, and it says, He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac uh, walked, the God who has been my shepherd, all my life long to this day, and the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Right? When, when Jacob blesses these boys, when, when he puts his hands upon his grandsons that are now becoming his sons, that he's adopting into this inheritance, right? he, he gives us a glimpse into what's changed his heart. And it's how he calls God. This is actually the first time in the Bible that, that God is called a shepherd. First time in the entire Bible, Jacob is the one who calls God a shepherd. And so he kind of gets to set the tone for the rest of the Bible that continues to call God by this title, shepherd. And, and for Jacob, this was a very intimate term, right? Jacob himself was a shepherd. And so he knew calling God a shepherd, he knew what that meant. He knew as a shepherd himself that this imagery bears with it a, a, a certain uh, weight to it, a certain responsibility to it. And so as he calls God a shepherd, he knows he's not only calling him a shepherd, he's calling himself a sheep. And I don't know about you, but that's not a compliment. Sheep are stupid. Sheep are foolish. Sheep can't even eat by themselves. Sheep can't walk by themselves. Sheep don't know where they're going or half the time who they are. Like, they're just wandering. They're, they're, there's a reason that's, that's an image throughout the Bible. Sheep don't know what to do. There's no such thing as a competent sheep. There's no such thing as an independent sheep. Jacob is saying about himself that at the end of my life, I'm seeing God as my shepherd and I'm seeing myself as his sheep. I'm seeing myself in this place of weakness and helplessness where I know that I need my shepherd. I need his care. I need his love. I need his protection over me. I need his guidance over me. But even more than that, I need him to change me. I need him to do for me what I can't do for myself. And so he uses this second metaphor. He refers back to the angel that happened in chapter 32. You remember we mentioned it last week briefly? In chapter 32 of Genesis, God shows up to this arrogant, self-righteous, self-reliant Jacob. He shows up to this cheating, manipulative man named Jacob. 
and God gets into a wrestling match with them. And God wrestles them to the ground. They're going, I don't know how long, and the Bible just says they were wrestling until dawn. And at some point in the match, this wrestling match between the angel of the Lord, God versus Jacob, God just, it, the Bible just says he simply touches the side of his hip and it dislocates Jacob's hip to where he walks away from the fight with a limp. And, and it's this image of, of submission, right? J- Jacob's wrestling with God, thinking he's making progress, thinking he's going to wrestle out of God this blessing. And God just in his, in his power, just contained in this little touch of his finger, I'm going to throw your hip out of the socket so you don't forget who I am. You don't forget that, that even though it feels like we're wrestling, you're not really wrestling with an equal. And he walks away in this submission that God really, he literally wrestles him into weakness so that the rest of Jacob's life, he will remember this is the way of God. It's weakness. And he, my shepherd, will wrestle me into whatever I need for my good, even if it hurts even if it's painful, even if there's evidence of it for the rest of my life. Right? God wrestles us because He loves us. Because He loves us. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband on the mission field, and if you never heard her husband's story, look it up. It's an incredible story. She lost her husband on the mission field, and uh, she, she went on to, to write a lot and, and speak a lot and, and had some incredible insights. One of her stories that she loved to tell she would talk about going to visit uh, her missionary friends who owned this sheep farm. And I think it was in Wales or something. And it was just out in this beautiful countryside. And she would go visit them. And, and her friend John was, was the shepherd of this, this flock. And she would go visit and just watch them take care of their sheep. And she said, I would go visit. And, and one time I went and, and uh, as she was there, they, they happened to be doing this annual cleansing of the sheep. The, the sheep had these parasites that if they weren't taken care of, they would get sick and die. And so once a year, they had to, to clean them. They, they had to literally dunk them in this huge tub full of insect-killing antiseptic. Right? And, and so to do that, you can imagine... It's, it's a lot of work. you got to, first of all, gather up all the sheep and, and then get them into this little barn and then get them into the tub full of this stuff. And, and the whole time they're fighting, they're screaming, they're squealing. They're, they're thinking, you know, this is the end of my life. What is the shepherd doing? This is terrible. I mean, they're fighting and kicking, thinking they're saving their own life. And she said, I watched as, as John is trying to gather them up and he wrestles them into the tub and the dog, you know, the sheep dog is behind him trying to push them in with him. And he finally gets them in and then he has to wrestle them down into the water and then he holds their head under. Eyes, nose, ears, their whole head, every inch of their body has to be covered so they don't get sick. And she said, I watched their eyes full of terror as these these sheep look their shepherd in their eyes with these eyes that are saying, why are you trying to kill me? Why are you trying to kill me? I thought you loved me. And she said, I would go back and I just journaled, and this is what she said in her journal. She said, they didn't know that he was saving their life. There are times that I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment 
I was getting from my great shepherd, whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have any explanation. There will be no intellectual satisfaction this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? But I have found peace because the answer isn't an explanation, but a person. Jesus Christ, my Lord and my good shepherd. See, what she's saying is, is Jesus, who, who is our good shepherd, is, is really the one who, who gives us hope only because he's been where we've been, right? The good shepherd Jesus has wrestled in the same wrestling match. If you come to the end of Jesus' life, he's wrestling not with the angel of the Lord, but with his father as he cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he say? My, my father, why, why this cup? If there's any other way. If there's any other way that we could accomplish what we're doing here, if there's any other way besides the way of weakness, if there's any other way besides the way of suffering, if there's any other way besides the way of death, please, let's do that. But nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. And Jesus, the good shepherd, becomes a sheep, and he dunks his own head under willingly willingly. See, the miracle of the gospel is that Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, right? He's the only shepherd who becomes a sheep to redeem his sheep. He's the only shepherd who gives up his own position of strength for weakness. He gives up his position of honor for shame. He gives up his position of glory for humiliation. He gives up his position of power for pain. How can we know that the way of weakness is the way of God? Because it's the way that our shepherd took himself. He, coming already from heaven to the grave for us, for our good, for his glory, God wrestles us into the way of weakness for what? For our own good. It seems like he's trying to hurt us. It seems like he's trying to trick us. It seems like he's forgotten us. But like Jacob, like Jesus, we can look back and see that our shepherd was loving us. And he will do whatever it takes, even wrestle with death itself to get us where we need to be because his way is not the way of the world. His way is weakness. His way is upside down. His way is death and resurrection. And even if we don't know his ways, we know his heart, that his heart is love. And so as I close this morning, I just want to ask you, is God wrestling with you and what does that mean for you? I think the challenge of Jacob is to look back on our life and, and see with the eyes of faith, with the lens of the gospel, and say, how has my good shepherd been loving me? How has he been moving me, wrestling me, pushing me towards what he is wanting me to have? Because he loves me. It may hurt, it may be difficult, but whatever he's wrestling with in my life, you may be feeling that right now. You may be kicking back, you may push, you may fight, you may be saying, God, I don't want to go this way, this seems like it's death, this seems like it's terrible for me. God, why would you do this? And Jesus says, I know. I know my son. I know my daughter. But this is the way. This is the way I went before you. This is the way of the cross. This is the way I've led you into because this is the way that I saved you. This is the gospel shape to your life. This is how everything works. 
Because the good shepherd is willing to wrestle with you however it may be. Because he loves you. And the way you endure is the way of weakness. To say, good shepherd, help me submit. Good shepherd, take me, carry me, care for me, love me. Whatever way you desire, I am yours. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are the good shepherd who becomes a sheep. You are the good shepherd who, as you say, you lay down your life. You, you lay down not because someone forced you, because you are willing. No one took your life from you. You give it of your own accord. No one had to wrestle you into submission. You submitted of your own will. Even as you wrestled right before the cross, you, you weren't wrestling because you were forced. You were wrestling because you knew the cost that it would be. You knew that you would have to die. You knew that you would have to suffer for our sin. You knew that in order to save us, you had to die for us. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to see the ways of the shepherd. If you have to give us a limp, give us a limp. Whatever it takes, God. We ask that you would help us to see and, and look back and say, this is the way. This is the way you work. And so whatever we come up against, whatever struggles or suffering, whatever threat to our own strength and influence and status and comfort, whatever threat that may be, help us to trust you, the good heart of our good shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our